Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Secret Stories from the Underground. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, my brother, Dean, and uh, we're going to be podcasting with Steve Blue Stein. Blue Stein, not Steen. I thought it was Steen the whole time because the guy who set the interview up with me, he said Steen. Apparently, it's Stein. Legendary comedian. Uh, this dude has worked with so many great people. Uh, from stand-up to the movie industry. He's even worked with bands. He's put out books. Uh, worked uh, behind the scenes on films. Wrote plays. There's not much that Steve hasn't done. He's got a very interesting story. And, uh, you know, he was there at the beginning of the comedy store. So many great things that this guy has to talk about and he's lived through. And that's what this podcast is about. is people that got a great story that are in the entertainment business. And, uh... You know, Steve didn't let us down. He's definitely got a great story. Please go over to Amazon and purchase Steve's book. Steve just put out a book called Point of Pines. It's a great book. Um, if you're looking for a comedic, uh, comedian book or a comedy book, this might not be it, but this is one that'll hit you in the heart. Um, I know from just listening to uh, the background of this book and everything else, uh, me and Steve have a lot in common, and I, I think that that's great that he put out a book for people that have lived through a life like we have and, um, you know, can somehow build a connection through that. So anyway, I'm done rambling because, you know what, we got a very talented guy that uh, is going to be on the podcast today. So this is it. Please go to Amazon, though, and purchase that book. You won't be disappointed. And a big shout out to Steve for giving us his time. And, um, you know, time is everything. So thank you, Steve, for that. And here's uh, here's the episode, everybody. Enjoy. Hey, hey. Steve. Hey, Danny. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. That's great, man. I'm, I'm here with my uh, co-host, Dean, just so you know. So if you hear more than one voice, I'm not pulling a prank on you, bud. I'm not doing voices. How you doing, Steve? How you doing? Uh, to, uh, guys, two things. Uh, my, la- my last name's pronounced Blue Stein, like Beer Stein. Okay. And I have a new talk show on YouTube. Uh, it's called Let Me Say This About That, and I want to talk about that as well. All right, well, do you want to start with it? We can start with whatever you want, Steve. No, no, just work it in some way. You just, I- <laughs> All right. All right, uh, so um, let, let's start off with your stand-up career. What did you get into stand-up? 1847. <laughs> That's a, that was a great year. Yeah, it was a great year for comedy. No, I, uh, the, comedy <laughs> store, the comedy store opened in 1971, and I was there almost the first week it opened. And I had been a, an assistant buyer at the May Company in Los Angeles, but I lived in an apartment building, and in the apartment building was uh, uh, the guy who played Reuben on the Partridge Family, Dave Madden. And Dave would hear me around the pool making people laugh, and he said, you know, you could do that professionally. And he said, there's this new club that opened up called the Comedy Store, and I'm going to take you there. So Dave Madden and Albert Hammond, who is um, uh, an Emmy Award winning 
um, musician, you know, songwriter and musician. The two of them brought me to the comedy store and that's how I started. That That is awesome. So during that time when the comedy store first opened, who was like being featured there? Who was coming in the door to do comedy at that time? Well, when at that time, I think there were maybe 50 comedians in the country. There were, you know, the comedy boom had not even uh, begun. No one even, no one even knew that there would be such a thing as a comedy boom. Uh, so all the old timers, uh, Flip Wilson used to come in, and Red Fox, and um, Sammy Shore, and and uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm going back quite a few years, so. Um, Shecky Green, um, you know, all the old time comedians that were friends of Sammy's and, and the club was basically open to showcase Sammy as a talent because he was the opening act for, uh, Elvis and he's, he needed a showcase and turned out that it showcased everyone in the world, but Sammy. <laughs> that's great so uh of course the comedy store is owned by the shore family uh or, or all that so uh was was misty really hard to work for back then or was she just kind of trying to pull whoever she could get into the club well at look, that time it, it wasn't like that at all first of all her name's mitzi and uh uh, uh mitzi uh, was Sammy's wife, and she was just a ticket taker at the time. Uh, the club had no structure. You, whoever came in would get up on stage. There was no scheduled show. And in the beginning, the club was packed, always packed because it was new and exciting. But in Los Angeles, that doesn't wear, that wears out quickly because what was coming in were industry people, you know, uh, uh, producers, directors, writers. They were all coming in as a hangout, but none of them were buying, were buying liquor. So it was costing Sammy an arm and a leg to, uh, to, to keep all these people drunk. Well, they had, <laughs> they had to start charging for the drinks. And when they started charging for the drinks, the crowds withered out to almost nothing. At about the same time, Sammy and Mitzi were, were in the midst of a divorce. And Mitzi wanted the club in the divorce. I know that because Mitzi called me and asked me to come to the meeting, which they would discuss who got the club. And I was one of the witnesses at that meeting. So <laughs> Mitzi got the club and she was a marketing genius. The first thing she did was she got little matchbooks with the comedy store on it. And then she painted the club black. And then she got the, then she started structuring the shows. And she was the one who actually created what every, comedy club in the United States today runs by. She, Mitzi did that. As 
I was gone by 1975. I had been signed by an agent and I was on the road. I was working. So I wasn't in the comedy store when the boom happened. I was already on the road being an opening act uh, for, you know, Donna Summer and Barry Manilow and people like that. Um, so I never worked with Mitzi. So when you say, was she difficult? So I'm getting back to your question. When was she <laughs> I wouldn't want Mitzi's job if you if you gave me all the gold in the world. I'll tell you why. She's dealing with 30, 30, 40, 50 comedians, all of which who think they're the best and they should have this the spotlight. So Mitzi had to juggle a lot of people around. And and it was difficult, you know, and people say she was difficult. It was because she didn't say to them what they wanted to hear. She told them the truth. And that's the God's honest truth. I was there. I witnessed it. Sometimes the truth hurts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and comedians are just actors, you know, like everybody else with an ego. And they want to be told that they're the best. And when they when they're not told, they get hurt. Yeah. Um, oh, you got a uh, question, Dean? Wait. Uh, you, you had mentioned that when you were on the road, you were on the road with like Donna Summers, Barry Manilow, and that. Um, so, what was that like then, doing shows with musicians and um, you know, some of the other musicians that you got to work with as well? Let's see. I worked with Frankie Valli, uh, Seals and Croft, uh, 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 Kenny Loggins, Tower of Power. Um, Gloria, Gloria Gaynor, not Gloria Gaynor, Gloria, uh, who was the, I will survive. Was that Gloria Gaynor? Yes, I think it was. Uh, I mean, uh, let's see, I'm trying to go through the list in my head. It was that when I love musicians, I mean, to be able to, you know, I used to do a joke and say, when you, when, I, I love when they go to a, a, a musician, and they say, take it. And he does. I could never take it. You know, I, I would freeze up. <laughs> I would freeze up. So it was amazing to, to actually, actually in Kenny Loggins shows, his music was so wonderful that I would do my set, then run out and sit in the audience. So I saw every single show. Uh, Melissa Manchester was the same way. Her music was amazing. And she was such a, is such a wonderful human being that I would run out and watch every show. But that, that is cool. Um, so, uh, so what were the, the, the crowds like there for you though? Um, how, how were they, um, receiving a comedian and that knowing that they're, uh, they've got these big stars and that uh, musicians and that ready to come on. And right. There's always that, um, there's <laughs> always that because they're, they're not coming to see the comedian they're coming to see them the headliner and uh it, that's why it's your job to warm them up and quiet them down so that they're focused for the headliner uh it's always i don't think i had three jobs in all the years i worked where the audiences were just 
so unruly that I couldn't handle it. <laughs> you know, I, I opened for Mac Davis at the Kansas City uh, Hutchinson, Hutchinson, Kansas State Fair. There were 10,000 okay. people in the audience. The, and they were the most loving group of people I've ever worked for. <laughs> I, I, I was a little scared and I, ha I had done a TV show very uh, about a week prior and on the show was Minnie Pearl, who was a lovely human being. And I, I, I said to her, you know, I'm going, I'm going to Kansas and I'm really scared. And she says, oh, honey, they're going to love you. Let me give you this joke. <laughs> and she gave me the opening joke. It got a huge laugh and that set me off. So uh, when was the last time you actually opened for a musician then? Oh, it's been a long time because I retired from the road about Oh, it must be 10 or 15 years ago so I could write, you know, and I have, uh, I've written seven plays and three books and, and I worked on TV, you know, and sitcoms and variety shows. Um, the, the road is a, a rough life. There are, there are comedians that they call road animals. I'm not one of them. You know, I like, <laughs> I like my luxury. I like, staying home and and being surrounded by the things that I love and, and and when you're on the road you're on a bus or a plane and you're in a different hotel room and you're different people all the time it's it's a really difficult life and I did that for almost 20 years so I had had enough I had done enough and I was I was changing the direction of my career do you uh do you remember what like was there a real big breaking point or anything that you're just like you know I'm done doing this road thing what was the thing that really made absolutely, you absolutely absolutely um my agents called and they told me they had two shows for me in Atlantic City it was five thousand dollars a show and I said fine and they said um I said, what time are the shows? And they said, three and five. And I said, in the morning? And they said, no, in the afternoon. I said, three o'clock in the afternoon in Atlantic City? Do you know what that is? That's those old women from New York who get bussed in on bus tours and they <laughs> take them in. That's not my audience. And my agent said, look, my agent said, look, if you don't take this gig, we're going to drop you. And I said, thank you. I'm done. And that's, that, was the, that was the last time I, I worked. Now, but, okay, so you go back to L.A. from that. Are you a little nervous being that you just dropped your agent? Because having an agent in L.A. is huge. I know. So, you, these are great questions. You, you're really hitting, you're hitting all the important points. Yes, uh, it was, it was, um, a little bit scary, but unlike most comedians, I had invested every cent I ever made. So I was not going to starve. I was fine. And then I got a phone call from uh, Mary Willard, who was Fred Willard's wife. 
and she told me that she belonged to a writer's workshop called that Carol Mora ran and uh, I should join it. It was out of the blue and I joined it and that gave me another road because now I was working towards something else. And in that class, I learned, I wrote my plays and, uh, and I learned confidence in writing. Now, uh, and I used that in writing television, you know, in writing sitcoms, which was a nightmare. Writing sitcoms for the, on the shows I were on were just hell. You know, it was like 14 hour days and lots of pressure and it, you know, it was not fun. Yeah, that's uh, it's no good when the work becomes not fun, especially in entertainment. You know, this is supposed to be the funnest job in the world. So, you know, yeah, for the audience. Um, so, ah, uh, so yeah, you know, with that, you have worked in a lot of different avenues in entertainment, from stand up to writing, um, for for sitcoms, for TV to now book writing and that as well. You know, is there, I guess, one avenue that pulls at your heartstrings more than the rest? Well, I love the writing. I mean, I, I've written three books, Memoir of a Nobody, Take My Prostate, Please, and uh, uh, Point of Pines, which is the latest book. And, you know, I get in my office at six o'clock in the morning. I sit down and I start writing. I'm alone. It's quiet. And I look up and it's 11, 30, 12 o'clock. And that's joy to me. That means that I was so, so in the zone that the time just flew by. And, yeah. uh, and I, I love to write and I'm an only child, you know? I mean, I don't do well in groups. So uh, uh, writing alone is like the best for me. I love it. <laughs> Uh, while we're talking about books real quick, I did hear another podcast where you were on promoting Points of Pines. And I got to say, I, I really liked what you what you were saying on there and everything else, because uh, me and Dean both came from a family who's, you know, uh, a little crazy at times. <laughs> you know, broken. They were a little out there. So um, I really felt a connection with what you were saying, promoting the book and everything. Can you give us uh, a little synopsis about what the full book is about? Point of Pines, I come from a dysfunctional family. My parents were uh, divorced when I was about seven or eight years old, but it was a violent, violent uh, marriage. And we were left homeless. We were left uh, penniless. And my mother was very bitter, very bitter. And of course, I was the reminder of that marriage to my mother. So I took the brunt of her anger after she left, after my father left. And there were a group of people that lived in a city called the Point of Pines. And they were the only people in my life at that time who showed me any love. And they taught me what love is. And they became my surrogate family. And I wanted to write about them and almost in tribute to say thank you 
for what they had given me. And they gave me a lot. That's awesome. So uh, not really a good or not really a comedic book, but a very uh, touching story. Exactly right. There, I, I, I say to my friends, it's not a joke in Point of Pines. Um, uh, a memoir of a nobody is one laugh after another. That That is strictly the funniest thing I've ever written. Um, Take My Prostate, Please, is a serious subject about prostate cancer, but <laughs> done, with, done with comedy, you know, done with my viewpoint on it. And, but Point of Pines is a serious book about dysfunctional families and uh, what it does to a child growing up and how important it is for adults to hear children, appreciate children, and treat children with the love that they deserve. I totally agree. Yeah, that's a, that's awesome. Uh, it's awesome that you could break down, you know, the barrier of being a funny guy, a comedian, and hit with such a serious issue and topic. Well, you know, comedians can do serious acting. Look at your look at your history. Uh, comedians can act seriously. However, serious actors cannot do comedy, not all of them. I totally agree. Very true, very true. <laughs> so it was easy for me to take off the clown and, you know, and really get down to the nitty gritty of what, you know, what my childhood was like. And um, both my parents are dead now. And it made it easy for me because I could finally tell my story because up until that time, both of them denied what uh, was going on. Oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, uh, that <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and when writing the book, I've had people from my hometown write me and tell me that everything I wrote was the truth because they witnessed it as well. You know, we lived in the housing project and the walls are made of paper. And those people who lived there wrote me at, uh, and said, we heard it. We know what you're saying is true. So uh, it, it was really cathartic to write this book. It really was. So what's it like when you've worked and done so much comedy and then you try to make that shift into something more serious and that as far as on a professional level, it being accepted um, by, by your peers and those that, uh, your, your audience as well? Well, it, it really, I didn't even think about it. It was just something I needed to, oh, I'm going to write this now. You know, it's not, yeah. it, it's, you have to be, my, my tendency is always to, to write funny because I think funny. Uh, so I was cognizant of, of not making this book funny. I wanted it to be uh, serious and I wanted it to be thoughtful. And I think I accomplished it. It's, it has, it's available on Amazon and it has already 37 five-star reviews. It's been out about two months now, so people oh, are loving it. Very nice. Congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, you, you sold me on making a purchase for that. And I don't even read books, Steve. So, you know, uh, <laughs> that's well, a big have win. Somebody yeah. read, have somebody read it to you. <laughs> do, you do you have that on tape by chance? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't because I'm dyslexic. And for me, too. Got <laughs> well, that in common. Yeah. And, and, and it, for me to uh, to record, it would take forever because I would be keep continuously me making mistakes. Uh, one of the books, I think, "Memoir of a Nobody" is on tape, uh, but I had somebody record it for me because I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I would have a hard time just sitting in a booth for that long reading a book, you know, yeah. <laughs> even if I did write it. <laughs> I know I can't read my own books. I mean, that's how badly dyslexic I am. I can write them, but I can't read them. It's that's that's <laughs> so uh, because you know I said I have dyslexia. You have dyslexia. Um, has that ever come in to hinder your writing at all? Every day, <laughs> every day. <laughs> I, had a, I had a writing partner. We were going to start. Uh, we were going to form a production company, and I said. What should we call it? And he said, my slelf. I said, my slelf. He said, yeah, because for the last four years, whenever you have to write myself, you write my slelf. So we should call it my slelf. (laughs) That's great that you say that, because I'm looking at notes on things to talk to you about and nothing spelled correctly. So, (laughs) Oh, I'm the worst speller in the world. You know, you want to hear something you must get if you're really dyslexic it's a, a program called uh grammarly grammarly it's the best thing i have ever had not only does it find spelling mistakes but it find it it, it it adjusts your punctuation and that's been a nightmare for me because i can never remember the rules so grammarly <laughs> you go get download that to your computer you'll thank me I, I, I will definitely do that. So when you were getting into playwriting, what was the first play that you worked on? I had an idea for a play going back 1970. I always wanted to write this play. And it was called Rest in Pieces. And it, it's a very complex play, death and... Um, uh, it, it investigates how death affects a family when you remove one of the people from the family. So uh, in one act, the father dies and the parent and the mother and the son are, are left alive. In the next act, the mother dies and the father and the son are left alive. In the third act, the son dies and the mother and the father go on after the... And it just shows in a three-person family, what happens if you take one of them away? And so that plays two or three productions and two or three readings with Lainey Kazan and Olympia Dukakis and, uh, and Doris Roberts, all have read the, you know, all have been involved. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoy playwriting, but it's very difficult to get a play produced. And now with the pandemic, you know, everything is shut down. So, you know, you might as well just give up. <laughs> now, now, rest in pieces. That was uh, good enough to make it to Broadway, right? 
I didn't make it to Broadway. It made it to New York. It had okay. a, uh, it, it had a, um, a full production at the uh, Delaware uh, Theater Company, which was the most professional theater company I have ever worked with. The greatest group of people that, you know, that you could just work. They were everyone from, from the set designer to the, to the sound engineer, everyone. They were just the great group of people. Uh, it was, it was one of, and of course we had a wonderful cast. We had Donna Pescow as the mother. She was from Saturday Night Fever, and Lenny Wolpe and uh, Frank Vlasnik. They were uh, they're Broadway actors. So very well known in in New York, uh, and so the the four of us were like a family. Uh, you know, we we're still friends to this day. That's awesome. Do do you still ever like? Does that play still feature anywhere or only in my mind? Hey, yeah. that, you know what? That's a great <laughs> place, though. You know, I, yeah. unfortunately, I can't see it there, but you know, it, the, the well, premise yeah, of it is, is very interesting. Love, yeah, well, it, that's called the conceit, the conceit of the play. I um, I would love to get a production you know, anywhere <laughs> in your <laughs> living room because, because I put so much time into it and it's, it's really, you know, if you say of all my projects, that's my baby. And I have a lot of projects. <laughs> yeah. We, we seen that you've been working pretty consistently since uh, before we were born. So, you know, that's great. Oh, thank you. That doesn't make me feel old at all. <laughs> Hey, it's yeah. not a, it's not about an age thing. It's how you feel inside, you know. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. Um, I uh, just recently, within the last maybe month, I was contacted by uh, produce by producer, uh, and would I be interested in having a talk show on the YouTube network? And I said, well, I don't want to, and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. You shoot it in your living room. I said, I'm there. <laughs> so so um, is, is, is that the idea for the new YouTube show that you're doing then? Yeah, it's the show's called, let me, let me say this about that. And it's a half hour show and we interview uh, only my friends. <laughs> my friends and I have lots of friends you know I, I, I Lorraine Newman is a friend and, and Fred the late Fred Willard and people like that uh, we're all are all friends and so we're going to interview all of them like the next show will be Elaine Boozler uh, and we'll have you know uh, we'll have as as many of my friends as I can get to to say yes I know Jackie Joseph. You know who Jackie Joseph is? She was the actress who was in uh, Little Shop of Horrors, the very the first film. Okay. The, the very first film. And she was on Mayberry RFD, and she was on The Carol Burnett Show, and she was married to Ken Barry, and she's, she's probably 
the nicest human being you will ever meet. I adore this woman. When I was, I had, uh, I had some surgery. I fell and broke my neck. She came to my house to visit. Now, show business people don't do that. You know, they're not that kind of giving person. And, <laughs> and, but, but Jackie is, and I love her for that. And we're going to have her on and there'll be lots of people. It's, I, I have to tell you, we've got 6,000 views, average, 6,000 views on the three shows, you know, each, 6,000 views each. Wow. On the, and I was in shock, literally in shock. 1,400 subscriptions with only just going on Facebook and saying, hey, I got a, I got a talk show. So hopefully um, your listeners will tune in and uh, look all you have to do is go to youtube and type in let me say this about that and then there'll be a, a, a it'll bring you to one of the uh episodes and you click on the subscribe button and you'll be reminded every time there's a new show how often are you guys putting out episodes of that every two weeks i'm not killing myself i don't blame you buddy <laughs> I'm, I, I, so we're going to do it one every two weeks. And if it becomes really, really popular, we'll do one a week. But I, 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 I'm really comfortable with one every other week. That's awesome. So, I will definitely be checking that out. Thanks. So you say you're only three episodes in so far? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, well, had Mrs. Uh, we had Mrs. Hughes on the first show. She um, she went viral with a two million hits on her videos uh, online, and then Kathy Ladman, who is an award-winning actress and comedian, uh, and then last week we had Jay Johnson from the uh, from this uh, this sitcom <laughs> Soap. He was the ventriloquist on Soap, and he just won a Tony for his play. The two and only, which is available on uh, YouTube, not YouTube, but Netflix. Okay. Um, so now you you had mentioned too about having lots of uh, well, I got famous, cool friends that that you've had there. Um, you worked with some amazing people back in the day with the Groundlings. Oh yeah, uh, see. It, show business is very um it's a small town and uh everybody knows everybody it's a very small business well the comedy store had an improv group called the comedy store players in that group was bo crapperl pat proft gary austin and carol eta white now one of them, I think Pat dropped out to do Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, Kentucky Fried Theater, <laughs> which was the the Zucker Brothers um, theater. And they then went on to write uh, 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 cop, uh, Police Academy, Airplane, um, you know, all those Zucker films. But yeah. I replay 
I replaced Pat in the group. And I was asking if anybody knew of any classes and Gary Austin said, you know, I'm going to start a class. And I said, can I join? He said, sure. So I joined Gary Austin's workshop, which became the Groundlings. And I was in the very first show that Gary ever did uh, in, in a small theater. And that show was the basis of what later became the Groundlings Saturday, you know, Saturday night show where everyone is discovered. Like all the people on Saturday Night Live come, yeah. from the, come from the Groundlings. And that came from the comedy store. It's yeah. all in, all interconnected. And there and the the Groundlings is still pumping out new stars and comedians all the time. All the time. All the time. Uh one of the the women on Saturday Night Live, I don't remember her name, the blonde is uh, was a groundling. Because uh, I, I know wasn't Maya, Maya Rudolph as well? I don't know if Maya was. I don't think she was. No. But no, but Elvira, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong because, you know, I've been away from the Groundlings for a while. But um, but Elvira, uh, Pee Wee Herman, um, uh, I can't remember. You know, the, the first thing that goes are the names. You know, I can, <laughs> I, I can tell you what they look like. I can tell you what they wear. I can't tell you what their name is. So... <laughs> Just trust me, they're all they're all from the groundlings. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what, we're talking about some other people real quick. We're both for, uh fans of uh um Fred there. Could you give us a story uh, about Fred while we were talking about him? I know that you shared a story about his wife, but is there a cool time where you guys were hanging out yeah, that you I'll could tell us about? Let me tell you, Fred and Mary were the very first friends I made in Los Angeles. I was performing at the comedy store and uh, a couple of days later, another friend, Randy Kirby called me and said, hey, Fred Willard saw you and thought you were funny. And I said, I would love to be friends with Fred Willard. And he said, I'll introduce you. So that was 45 years ago, maybe. Maybe it was 50 years ago. And uh, Fred, and I and Mary became friends. And when Billy Saluga left the Ace Trucking Company, I replaced Billy and uh, went on the road with the Ace Trucking Company. And, he, and Fred, I walked out in the hotel lobby one day and Fred's on a chair and he's unscrewing the the light from the elevator. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, every time the elevator comes up, it goes ding and it wakes me up. So I unscrew. I'm a... So about 35 years later, they're doing a, 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 an evening with Fred Willard and I was asked to speak and I was going to tell that story, but the person ahead of me told the exact same story in a different hotel. And I thought, 
oh my God, there are hotels all across the country with no elevator spells because because <laughs> Fred's erased them. But <laughs> but the Willards were no not notorious. They were famous for their parties. They threw parties, and I'm not talking ten people. I'm talking hundreds of people uh, for Christmas. New Year's, Thanksgiving, St. Patrick's Day, Fred's birthday, Mary's birthday, Hope, their daughter Hope's birthday, then their grandson Freddie's birthday. Every, and, and they created this family of friends that we only saw each other at the Willard's house. And when Mary passed away, uh, I, I, it was devastating for me. It was, it was like someone had taken my heart and ripped it out. I, I grieved for months and, and just the mention of her name still chokes me up. Fred, you know, Fred was older and, uh, and the last time I saw him, he wasn't doing well. So uh, I was saddened that Fred passed away. I wasn't surprised because he had been so ill. Um, yeah. But uh, again, I miss them both. I miss them both with the kind of, of grief that you only hold, hold for family. And, you know, it's a long time, 45 years. But yeah, that's that's a long nice. friendship for sure. Yeah. That's awesome that you have the amazing stories and memories, though. Then people like uh, at a, at one of the parties, who would be somebody that you would constantly see there all the time? All right, these are great questions, guys. <laughs> all right, at at the party, always was Joanne Worley, and the Christmas party was always the same. It was always the same, the same food, the same decorations. And Mary would pass out. We'd sing, we'd sing um, carols, and Fred would do a recitation of of the first night of Christmas. And then in the middle, you know, Joanne's been at the party the whole. He, all of a sudden, she would disappear, and the doorbell would ring, and Fred would say, "Oh wait, let me get the door." And she and Joanne would be sitting there, standing there, and she'd say. Fred, I was just in the neighborhood and I heard all this singing and I thought I would come. And everyone said, oh, come in, Joanne, come in. And Joanne, went, and she said, I hope you don't mind. I brought my piano player. And the piano player comes in and then she would do a show. She would do a <laughs> song. And that's for everybody. So that Joanne and then Peter Marshall, always there. Doris Roberts. Um, Everybody in comedy, Doris. <laughs> Doris Roberts, everybody in comedy, uh, the, the voices of the, of the, uh, of the Simpsons were there. Um, the producer of Ray, uh, uh, everybody loves Raymond, uh, it, you name it, they were there at the parties. That's, that's amazing. That. <laughs> I loved Fred on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. <laughs> uh, were you friendly with Doris Roberts there? Uh, well, she did a reading of one of my plays. I mean, we were 
I can't, I can't say we were friends, friends, but we were certainly social acquaintances. And uh, she, uh, she knew me, you know, to say hello to, but that's about it. Um, you know, I wrote the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. I hope you know that. And yeah, I, did, yes. I did know that. It is in my notes. And that was a hoot uh, because Florence Henderson and I remained friends right to the end as well. Uh, although the last time we saw her was at the Willard party and she introduced me to her daughter and she said, you remember Peter Bluestein, don't you? And I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, Florence is losing it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So uh, what was it like writing on that show? Give us oh, a little piece of that. Well, uh, <laughs> First of all, all the writers were stoned all the time, myself included. <laughs> and, and Bruce Valanche was one of the writers. So you can just imagine what was going on in the back. You know, and it was just insane. It was literally the, the best time I ever had on a show in my life. Um, but it was crazy. You know, we'd... we'd We'd have guests like Tina Turner and Farrah Fawcett and, and, and Milton Berle. I mean, they got the biggest names in show business to do the show voted fourth first television show in the history of television. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I would say to Bruce, it was so bad, we couldn't even be number one. We were, had to be number, <laughs> we were number four. <laughs> oh that's funny uh we, we podcast with bruce this weekend so how much have you worked with bruce uh, uh a lot uh we we worked together on that show but we were friends prior and friends after uh i, I just did uh a reading of valley of the dolls where we we all we did a bunch of actors got together as a charity thing and and Bruce was on that as well i think <laughs> <laughs> he might have been I, might not have been who knows no, no, I, I just had to turn and look at the poster yeah he was, <laughs> <laughs> he was on that's awesome so now i had seen too that you did some some writing for playboy yeah i wrote um the Playboy Playmates of the Year Award show, which was... Oh, really? Yeah, it was three writers, myself and two other guys. We met with, with um, Hefner in the morning. He mapped out the show. We went into the office. We wrote the show, as he suggested. Nine o'clock at night, we meet with him again to show him the script. And he's changed his mind. He has a whole different concept for the show. Though so we had to rewrite the show starting at nine o'clock at night. The trucks were showing up at six o'clock in the morning next morning. So we wrote <laughs> the entire we wrote the entire night through the night. One of the guys was smoking dope the whole time. And and I fell asleep around four o'clock. And six o'clock, the trucks are rolling in. We don't have a script. 
So they would send me down to the set and I would talk to the director and I'd say, what are you shooting next? And he'd say, oh, the scene by the pool. And I'd run back and they need the scene, but we'd write the scene by the pool and they'd send it out. Then I'd run back, <laughs> what's after this? And they'd tell me and I'd run back and we'd write that. It was unbelievable. It, and also, uh, I was, and Jay Leno was on that show, Barbara Mandrell. And I was on the show as well. I did stand up as well on the show. But I went to the director and I said, look, the show's running long. I did horribly. Cut me. And they did. But I, you know, I still got, <laughs> I still got the writing credit. Uh, when you were doing the writing for that, did you get to go into the Playboy Mansion and, you know, oh. check all that out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The grotto and everything. So does that mean that after doing that, you got an open pass to come party at the Playboy Mansion? I, I did, but I never went, you know. Oh, my goodness, man. Yeah. No, it was not what you thought it was. It was like no, a, no. no it was like a hotel. And they just sold it. They just sold it. And I always thought, that's so funny. Who would buy that? You know, to see a couple of <laughs> Yeah, we really wanted a place with two grottos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, do you still live in LA? No, I I left LA. I live in the, I live just outside of Palm Springs now. Okay, we're we're getting ready to move to LA uh, here pretty soon. Is there any advice for people that might be moving out that way? Yes, don't. <laughs> <laughs> See, you, you say that, but my guy here in Omaha tells me that I'm about as famous as I'm, I'm ever going to get here in Omaha. So he's telling me I got to move to L.A., you yeah, know? Well, I, I want to say this with most sincerity and not to be insulting to you, but it will mean nothing in L.A. No matter. Yeah. It'll mean nothing. No matter how famous you are in Omaha, means nothing. Um, oh, Oh, no, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get L.A. famous, not Omaha famous. <laughs> the thing is to, uh, if you're going to L.A., go with a lot of money. Because yeah. housing is going to be, you won't believe what they're charging for a one-bedroom now. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, we've been looking into yes. <laughs> is, uh, is that kind of what made you decide to pack up and move out of the, the city there? Well, no, I was just, I mean, I'd lived in L.A. since 1970. So I had seen it go from a small, small, a big, small town to a big, big town. And the traffic is unbearable. <clears throat> Things that took 20 minutes to go to, now we're taking an hour, an hour and a half because of the traffic. And, and you know, and everything is being ripped down and built higher and it's, and the streets aren't, the streets aren't um, built for that. And the homelessness is unbearable. There are a whole block after block after block after block of tent cities. Uh, it's just, it was became a hellhole and I couldn't stand it anymore. So I moved out. Plus I got, you know, a small fortune from my house. So I'm set. <laughs> Did, wasn't your house featured on uh, what what network was it? Well, it was featured on HGTV, and then they did an article about it in the LA Times. Yeah, you yeah. got a beautiful pad, by the way. 
Thanks. Pad. <laughs> well, you know, it's either pad, crib. I don't know what you call it, but. Yeah. Home. <laughs> it's called a home. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. So. so. Oh, go ahead, Steve. What were you saying, buddy? No, I was just going to say, um, how many more questions do you have? <laughs> I'm losing. Well, we're, we're an hour podcast, so real got, quick, you know. Bef- we got 10 more minutes. What's that? We have 10 more minutes. Well, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about, you know, let's go back to the YouTube thing for a minute. So every two weeks you're putting out an episode of that. Um, anything else coming up that you, you might be working on here soon or uh, no. anything else that you have to promote? No, uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm basically retired. So, uh, and there's not much coming up. Okay. Uh, so when you say retired, like how much, how much would it take for, you know, the comedy store to get you for a weekend or a night? No, they, they, they don't have enough money. I, <laughs> they, they, I like that you're honest. Now, would, would you take a gig back writing in that if it were, um, if it, if it were the right, the right kind of show or something like that, that. Yes, I would. I would. I would take any writing gig that came along, um, and uh, I would take any stand-up gig if it was a professional, you know, opening spot in a in a in a venue, as opposed to a comedy club, because the comedy clubs have turned into, you know, beer selling places. That's all. The, the the comedian is less interesting than, less important than the beer. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, you know, what, how I feel about comedy now is a lot of these clubs, you know, they'll give you away free tickets. You got to buy a two drink minimum or food and all this shit. A lot of these people that come and they buy, get them tickets, they don't even care about the act on stage. And you you're know, I mean, you're absolutely right. You're for an entertainer, nobody wants to entertain for a crowd that got free shit, free drinks, and, and you know, could care less about the time that they're putting in up there. Right, exactly. And they reached a point where I think I was in Indianapolis and the, the club had changed hands and there was a new owner and they had changed everything about the club. I loved the club before and I loved the owners. I didn't like what they had done to it. But I was on stage and it was in the middle of the week and the crowd was drunk, dead drunk by the time I got on stage. And I remember saying to myself, why am I doing this? I know how to do this. I, have le- I know what it takes to make an audience laugh. It's like an equation. You have to have X, Y, and Z on the left to get laughter on the right and the equation was wrong in this club and I said why am I doing this I could stand here till I'm blue on the face these people are not going to laugh because they're not focused and they're drunk so yeah you know that's when I realized that the end is near (laughs) so uh, I also seen in my notes, and this could be wrong because the internet does lie, and I apologize if it is wrong, but uh, I did see that when you were doing stand-up, you used to like to kind of pick on the people in the front row? Absolutely. 
Did that ever turn bad for you? <laughs> Not once. Oh, yes, once in Chicago. But it was my fault because I, my judgment was off. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I was working in Vegas. I think I was opening for like either Shanana or Tower of Power, one of those music acts. And right in the middle of the act, I just stopped. And I looked at the audience and I said, if I have to say these words one more time, I'm going to kill myself. You know, because it was like doing a play over and over and over. So I stopped and I said to the guy in the front, what What do you do? It must be more interesting than what I do. And so I started talking to the audience and I developed this thing where I would talk to the audience. And if there was a doctor in the audience, I would do the doctor chunk. And if there was an accountant in the audience, I do an accountant chunk. You know, whatever it was, I would do. And that way it kept it fresh and interesting for me. And if you came to see my show, it would never be the same twice. So did you develop an, uh, kind of an eye for the right people to pick on in the audience and the, and the wrong people to avoid? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, you never pick on, you know, the infirmed or the mentally uh mentally uh challenged because they can't fight back um i was working in albuquerque new mexico it was saturday night and the club owner comes back to me and he says there are two guys sitting right in front of you right on the ring they're cowboys off the ranch leave them alone I said, okay. I got on stage. Thank you. Good evening. Good night. I looked at the two guys and said, boy, I'll bet the sheep are glad you're here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) The audience exploded and these two guys (laughs) laughed harder than anyone else in the room. It's because (laughs) I knew I could tease them. And the club owner came back and said, I can't believe you did that. I cannot. I said, look, this is what this is what I do for a living. You know, I know how far I can push it. <laughs> well, one, one last subject for you here, Steve. I want your opinion on this, because you came from a time where politically correctness wasn't as such a thing as it is today. Um, wh- what is your opinion on the whole PC movement and what has it done to comedy? All right. Uh it's homogenized comedy, but I agree with it. Oh, so me too. We have to, we have to become a more, uh, a kinder society, and making fun of someone from the, for their race or their size or their ethnicity is is really wrong, and. It may have taken an avenue of comedy away, but it's made society better, I think. Um, I, I agree. You know, and that's, you know, so many comedians learn from the other comedians. And uh, what you end up with is a, is a comic that they all sound the same. 
they all sound exactly the same. The same rhythms, the same subjects, the same punchlines, this, you know, and there's no individuality anymore. Uh, some of that is because they've been a large chunk of what they were able to talk about before. You can't talk about it anymore. And so they start copying from themselves, you know, from each other. Do you ever look back at your old material and think like, oh man, maybe that doesn't age so well uh, with the whole PC movement now? Well, yeah. Um, there's lots of stuff you can't do anymore. Uh, you know, it's been so long since I've done my stand-up act that I can't even remember how. If, I, if tomorrow they were to say, you have a gig at X, Y, and Z, I would have to write a whole new act because I remember nothing, literally nothing. And there's so much more I want to talk about because my life has changed. You know, I'm older now. And so I would talk about the aging process and, and yeah, doctors yeah. and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, your perspective changes at the age. Let, let me tell you a funny, a funny story. Uh, I, you know, I had done this piece about my sister having a baby for forever, you know, forever. And I was on stage one day and I said something about my sister, uh, my parents having a, grand, a new grandchild. And a woman shot out and she said, how old was your sister? And I, I thought, oh my God, she's right. I just, I just talked about my age. And so that would make my sister even older. And she just had a baby. So now I had to change that to my sister has a grandchild. And then I, and then I decided the best thing is just move on. Take it away. Take it away. <laughs> That's what I've done. All right, well, Steve, get, before before we uh, let you go, where can people follow you at, your your social medias, what all are you on? All right, so uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, uh, and uh, my website is stevebluestein.biz, B-I-Z, uh, and they, of course they can check out Let Me Say This About That, and I would love it if you'd buy a book or two on Amazon. That would be great. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely uh, pub that book for you, man. And anytime you got anything new coming up or you just want to talk, feel free to, you know, be on the show. We'd love to have you back. Well, thanks. Yeah. You guys are terrific. And anytime you need somebody falls out and you need somebody, just call me. All right. Awesome. Sounds good, Steve. Well, you have a great day, buddy. You be safe. Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. It means a lot to us. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Talk soon. All right. Take it easy, Steve. Have a good one, bud. Stay healthy. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.